0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton engineering today's program. Today we'll have a lengthy conversation with Tara Matson. She's the author of Courageous, Being uh, Daughters, Rooted in Grace. Uh, We're also going to talk with Mallory Quigley. She's the national spokeswoman for uh, Susan B. Anthony List and Women Speak Out PAC. We'll talk about grassroots efforts to unite all pro-life Americans in the 2020 election. So I need to take a quick break here because I made a cup of tea. I put the bag in the the cup and it's been steeping now for way too long. It's going to be bitter and I have to take the bag out and I need to put a little bit of the sweetener in. This is really essential for the program. If I can just take a moment here and take care of that and throw that away, stir the tea, which is going to be bitter and unpleasant, but at least it's warm. Put that back on the coaster and now move forward as if I never said a word about it. Clark is looking at me with an incredulous expression on his face, but I needed to go down the hall before I came in here and it just just didn't work out. All right, now I'm ready. Taking a look at some of the headline news, New Hampshire's presidential primary kicked off at midnight. Voters in three tiny townships in the state's North County and White Mountains cast the first ballots in the first primary in the White House race. And this is a primary as opposed to a caucus, which took place last week. Dixieville Notch, which has held the midnight voting tradition for 60 years As well as nearby Mills Mills Field and Hart's location, they grab the national spotlight every four years as they report the first results in New Hampshire. It's a big deal for them. In fact, you probably wouldn't know a thing about Mills Field or Hart's location, and certainly not about Dixieville Notch. On the final day before the primary, Senator Bernie Sanders emphasized to supporters that what happens here in New Hampshire is enormously important. The whole country is not only looking at New Hampshire. In fact, the whole world is looking at New Hampshire. Okay. I think if you repeat a thing, it makes it even more true. After getting out of Iowa's caucuses with essentially a tie in the 2020 nomination rival uh, or with the rival Pete Buttigieg, expectations are high for Sanders in a state where he shares home field advantage with uh, fellow progressive standard bearer Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. She's not doing quite as well. She's about at the same level, according to polls with the former Vice President Joe Biden. Though Sanders and Buttigieg have high expectations there in New Hampshire, the same may not be said for former Vice President Joe Biden, who's coming off a disappointing showing in Iowa at the caucuses. As early as last Friday, he sounded like he was lowering expectations. I took a hit in Iowa, he said, and I'm probably going to take a hit here. In a striking moment at the top of Friday night's primetime Democratic presidential nomination debate, he is... Uh, I was heard saying I'll ask the next day by Fox News if he was writing off the Granite State. The former vice president fired back saying, I'm not writing off New Hampshire. I'm going to campaign like, well, he's going to campaign really hard uh, in New Hampshire, as I'm going to do in Nevada, in South Carolina and beyond. Look, this is just getting going here. This is a marathon The former vice president said still his numbers are disappointing. Meanwhile, charging that so-called sanctuary cities that protect illegal immigrants are jeopardizing domestic security. Attorney General Bill Barr announced a slew of additional sanctions that he called a significant escalation against left wing Local and state governments that obstruct the lawful functioning of our nation's immigration system. End quote. While well, speaking at the National Sheriffs Association 2020 Winter Legislative and Technology Conference in Washington, Barr said the Justice Department would immediately file multiple lawsuits against sanctuary jurisdictions for unconstitutionally interfering with federal immigration enforcement and implement uh, uh, unprecedented national reviews of left-wing sanctuary governments and prosecutors. In other news, T-Mobile's $26 billion tie-up with Sprint is expected to win a blessing from a federal judge as early as, well, sometime today. Both stocks soared in extended trading on Monday, with Sprint rallying about 71 percent after closing lower in the regular session after investors speculated the deal would face roadblocks from the state attorney's general, suing to block the deal on the grounds it would lead to higher costs for consumers. The judge has alerted parties of the ruling and will make it public, likely after the close of trading, according to sources familiar with the developments. I haven't checked on that, but that may actually uh, now be a a known fact. Well, New Hampshire's primary voting has kicked off. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are locked in a fierce battle. In fact, some are already projecting Sanders as the winner. Attorney General Barr announced sweeping sanctions. Funding secured for 1,000 miles of border barrier, the White House officials say. It's moving forward. The Department of Justice is charging four Chinese military officials in connection with the infamous Equifax data breach. And bigger than Vindman, President Trump scrubs 70 Obama holdovers from the National Security council six year old girl with Down syndrome has pointed uh, her finger like a gun the school district has notified police hmm and Virginia Democrats are uh, very good for Virginia gun sales, despite uh, talk of trying to limit them. And while Nancy Pelosi asserts January jobs report shows the rot at the heart of the Trump economy, Americans say they feel the current economy is the best since the late 1990s. And China still mostly is closed down as the virus deaths from the coronavirus has exceeded 1000. Well on this day in history in 1990, Nelson Mandela he's freed after 27 years in captivity. On this day in history 1531, the Church of England grudgingly accepts King Henry VIII as its supreme head. 1929, the Lateran Treaty is signed with Italy recognizing the independence and sovereignty of Vatican City. That's 1929. 1937, a six-week-old sit, um, sit-down strike against General Motors ends with the company agreeing to recognize the United Auto Workers Union. On this day in history, 1945, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin signed the Yalta Agreement, in which Stalin agrees to declare war against Imperial Japan, following Nazi Germany's capitulation. 1979, followers of the Ayatollah Khomeini seize power in Iran. And on this day in history, 2006, Vice President Dick Cheney accidentally shoots and wounds Harry Whittington, a companion during a weekend quail hunting trip in Texas. Never really lived that one down. On this day in history, 2008, the Pentagon charged Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and five other detainees at Guantanamo Bay with murder and war crimes in connection with the 9 11 attacks. And on this day in history, 2009, Representative John Dingell, who first went to Congress in 1955, becomes the longest serving member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He would become the longest serving member of Congress in June of 2013, just a few years later, surpassing Senator Robert Byrd's. Bind House and Senate service of 20,995 days. Finally, in 2013, on this very day, with a few words in Latin, Pope Benedict does what no pope had done in more than a half a millennia, announcing his resignation. The bombshell comes during a routine morning meeting of Vatican Cardinals. More on that at the very close of today's program. Bloomberg sweeps town's midnight vote as write-in. Klobuchar takes early lead. Warren's last stand... Nothing set in stone in Granite State. Every Democrat is depressed. Biden to skip own victory party. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe in voting booth. Voter backs Bernie over negative coverage on MSNBC. Candidates quietly band together to ditch DNC program. These are some of the latest uh, headlines uh, during today's primary in New Hampshire. We'll tell you more on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, New Hampshire is renowned for its mountains and lakes, its independent libertarian streak, and for its quadrennial tradition of being the state that holds the first primary in the race for the White House. And this cycle, the state's celebrating its 100th anniversary of its first in the nation primary status. Well, the Granite State held its first presidential primary in 1916, but four years later, after Indiana decided to move their primary to May, by chance, New Hampshire voted first. In those days, there were no candidate names on the ballot. New Hampshire primary voters elected delegates to go to the Republican or the Democratic convention. But that changed in 1949 when state legislative leaders pushed to place the names of the presidential candidates on the ballot. Three years later, in the 1952 primary, voters for the first time had a chance to cast a ballot directly for a candidate. And while that beauty contest didn't have any direct impact on the nomination race, the results were reported nationwide, giving New Hampshire plenty of attention. The 1952 primary put New Hampshire on the map for another reason, thanks to Democratic presidential candidate Senator Estes Kefauver. The uh, Tennessee senator was the first to make stops to meet and greet voters and court reporters. It was the start of New Hampshire's famed retail-style politics. And the primary grabbed even more attention that year when Kefever uh, won the primary that year in a landslide, easily topping incumbent President Harry S. Truman, who later withdrew his bid for reelection. For 100 years, New Hampshire has held the first primary in the race for the White House a sign marking the primary history stands just outside the State House in Concord, New Hampshire. They have uh, fiercely defended that uh, placement ever since. Fast forward to 1975, and the state legislature passed a bill allowing the New Hampshire Secretary of State to set the presidential primary date earlier than any other similar contest by seven days if necessary. So, depending on when someone tries to, well, Precede them, they just simply set their date seven days earlier. The law, which was later updated, has allowed longtime Secretary of State Bill Gardner, who took office in 1976, to fight off challenges to New Hampshire's first in the nation status from other states. New Hampshire and Iowa, which for half a century has held the first caucus in the presidential nominating calendar, have long fought to keep their positions as the kickoff contest. Now, many are arguing now that they no longer reflect the makeup of the nation. And South Carolina, for example, should perhaps be the first contest that reflects what the rest of the nation is likely to do. However, New Hampshire and Iowa fiercely Uh, Fight to hold their position. They've spotlighted their ability to level the playing field for all candidates, regardless of their campaign war chests, thanks to their small size and populations and emphasis on retail style candidate to voter contacts. But with critics pointing to the lack of diversity in the two overwhelming white states, as well as the state's lack of a large urban area, the fight to keep Iowa and New Hampshire first gets tougher every cycle. And we'll see what happens uh, following this cycle, particularly in Iowa when it was muddled so poorly. Well, fiery progressive Bernie Sanders was fighting for Democratic frontrunner status while the party hoped the New Hampshire primary would at least bring some clarity to a presidential nomination fight. That's so far been marred by dysfunction and doubt. I mean, there's only been one other contest, but it was enough. As Sanders predicted victory, former Midwestern uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg hoped to seize the backing of his party's establishment with a strong finish. And Joe Biden wanted to avert political disaster after fleeing the state hours before polls closed and canceling his uh, victory party. By night's end, New Hampshire could begin calling the Democrats unwieldy 2020 class, which still features nearly a dozen candidates battling for the chance to take on President Donald Trump and this fall's general election. The contest today comes just eight days after Iowa caucuses injected chaos into the race and failed to report a clear winner, even though a clear winner has been reported. For Sanders, the New Hampshire primary was an opportunity to build on his dominance of the party's left flank. A repeat of his strong showing in Iowa could damage progressive rival Senator Elizabeth Warren, who faced the prospect of an embarrassing defeat in a state that borders her home state of Massachusetts. And while Sanders marches forward, moderates are struggling to unite behind a candidate. After essentially trying to uh, trying with Sanders for the first place in Iowa, Buttigieg, the 38-year-old former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, began his day as the centrist front runner. But Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar was mounted. Amounting a spirited bid for the same voters and has done quite well, having already predicted he would take a hit in New Hampshire after a distant fourth place finish in Iowa. Former Vice President Biden was essentially ceding the state. He was traveling to South Carolina as he uh, bet his candidates, uh, his candidacy rather, on a strong showing there later this month, boosted by support from black voters. But even that population is uh, is halved in his favor. More than a year after Democrats began announcing their presidential candidates, the party struggling to coalesce behind a message or a messenger in its desperate quest to defeat Donald Trump. That raised the stakes for the New Hampshire primary as voters weighed whether candidates were too liberal, too moderate, too inexperienced, vulnerabilities that could play to Trump's advantage in the fall. Well, some candidates sought to undercut the importance of the New Hampshire election, but history suggests otherwise. No Democrat has ever become the party's presidential nominee without finishing first or second in New Hampshire. Now, during the final day of campaigning, many voters said that they are still struggling to make a choice. One 64-year-old said um, uh, on Monday that she was going to vote for Sanders, saying, I'm sick of politics as we know it, and I'm ready for someone who can do something, she said. It was uh, between him and uh, Biden. Uh, I was having a hard time, but I think we need a change. Well, that's sort of an interesting Way to make a decision, not on policy necessarily, but something different. Democrats were closely monitoring how many people showed up for the uh, contest on Tuesday. Uh, The Secretary of uh, State in New Hampshire predicted record high turnout, but if that failed to materialize, Democrats would uh, confront the prospect of waning enthusiasm following a relatively weak showing in Iowa last week and Trump's rising poll numbers. Trump campaigning in New Hampshire on Monday night sought to inject chaos in the whole process. The Republican president suggested that conservative-leaning voters could affect the state's Democratic primary results. The only registered Democrats and voters not registered with either party can participate in New Hampshire's Democratic presidential primary. I hear a lot of Republicans tomorrow will vote for the weakest candidate possible of uh, the Democrats, the president said Monday. My only problem is I'm trying to figure out who is their weakest candidate. I think they're all weak, end quote. Well, they also attacked Michael Bloomberg, who was showing signs of strength in polling around the country, but wasn't on the New Hampshire ballot. The president highlighted his comments during the 2015 appearance at the Aspen Institute in which he said the way to bring down murder rates was to put a lot of cops in minority neighborhoods because that's where all the crime is, end quote. Well, the former vice president and the Democratic Party's establishment wing may have the most to lose in New Hampshire should the former two-term vice president underperform in a second consecutive primary election. And it appears that he will do just that. Biden has earned the overwhelming share of endorsements from elected officials across the country Party leaders are seeking a relatively safe nominee to run against the president, but things are changing and changing rather quickly. New Hampshire House Speaker Steve Shirtlef, who endorsed the former vice president less than a month ago, spoke about him over the weekend as if he were already eliminated from the contest. The vice president himself seemed to suggest the same in some of its language. Biden's campaign, meanwhile, sought to cast New Hampshire as one small step in the path to the presidential nomination, with contests coming up in more diverse states that award more delegates, including Nevada and South Carolina, where the vice president hopes to retain his advantage among minority voters. Regardless of what happens on Tuesday, we plan to move forward, a senior advisor for the Biden campaign uh, was heard saying. Well, the stakes were dire for Elizabeth Warren as well. In a contest that's set just next door to her Massachusetts home, she's positioned herself as a mainstream alternative to Bernie Sanders, although mainstream may not apply, but is suddenly looking up at him and Buttigieg as Klobuchar fights to peel away female support. Warren released an afternoon memo seeking to downplay New Hampshire's results. Campaign managers outlined a path to victory through 30-plus states where the campaign has paid staff rather on the ground as he highlighted alleged weaknesses in Warren's Democratic rivals. Buttigieg, young with no governing experience beyond the mayor's office, is trying to emerge as the leading Biden alternative for his party. In the days leading up to the primary today, Buttigieg has come under increasing attack from Biden and Klobuchar, who seized on his lack of experience. And from the left, Sanders attacked Buttigieg's reliance on big uh, dollar donors, uh, which sparked jeers of Wall Street Pete from Sanders supporters. Well, Sanders has um, been one of the only candidates to explicitly predict victory in New Hampshire, where he defeated Hillary Clinton by more than 20 percentage points four years ago. He spent the eve of the primary courting his most passionate supporters, young voters at two college campuses. And on Monday night at a rally at the arena on the University of New Hampshire campus, a band pumped up the crowd with a cover of The Who's My Generation before Sanders and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Uh, Took the stage. Brothers and sisters, we are making history in this campaign, Sanders declared at um, one event in Hudson. Well, after New Hampshire, the political spotlight will shift to Nevada, where Democrats hold caucuses on the 22nd of February. But several candidates, including Warren and Sanders, plan to visit states in the coming days that vote on Super Tuesday, signaling they're in the race for the long haul. So the next contest again on the 22nd, that's uh, midweek. Next week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Tara Matson. She's the author of Courageous Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, the stakes have never been higher as daughters of every age are trying to navigate a world of hypersexualization, social media, um, extreme loneliness, and a flood of confusing messages. Whether your desire is to know more of who you are created to be, or are raising daughters who are just beginning their own journeys, Courageous, the book we're going to talk about with Tara Mattson in just a moment. Um, is a book that leads women and those who love them through this um This transformation that we all need. Courageous explores the core concerns that plague every woman's relationship with God, with herself and with others. And she invites women and girls to join a global movement of courageous girls as they discover an empowered sense of purpose and an identity rooted in God's grace so they can love and be loved like never before. Well, Tara Mattson and her husband, Jeff, they're raising their own two daughters just outside of the Portland area. They're the founders of Courageous Girls and the counseling and organizational development firm Living Whole Hearted. Tara is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has helped thousands of women at every stage of the journey over the past two decades. And she joins us today once again to uh, spend uh, more time talking about her book, Courageous Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. Tara Madsen, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you for having me, Georgine. This is wonderful to be back. In the introduction, you write, growing up as an American girl in today's culture takes extraordinary courage. Yet it seems that the youth of this generation have increasingly fewer of the traits needed for the challenge before them. The message to be more, to do more, to fake it is pervasive in our nation. Despite our efforts, our society is not succeeding. We are more depressed, anxious, addicted, self-destructive and selfish than ever before. This is certainly not a hopeful way to begin uh, but it certainly is a clear picture of the challenge uh, that your readers uh, and their their parents, if you will, um, uh, girls and women face in the, the culture that we find ourselves in. Yes,
2: and it's uh, been a hard truth to sit with over the years as I'm seeing the resiliency factor go down, you know, what many might call grit, um, but the ability to move through hardship um, is decreasing as uh, just the complexity of the digital age and all the things that our children are facing. uh, It's just more of an expedient. uh, Every day, they're just bombarded by thousands of messages. And so are are the parents, uh, you and I uh, included in that, just as women uh, living in a culture where we constantly are being bombarded by a billboard, but now it's all in the stream of our hand and our phone. And it's really hard to move through and navigate with a sense of I am still valuable. I'm still worthy, even if I don't look like her or I'm not doing what she's doing.
1: So this book kind of sets it up with a dreary start, but with a lot of hope and practical tools throughout. You know, I think it's so important, and I appreciate that you give us a sobering picture of what the challenge is, because it's easy for us. We have the message of the culture washing over us for many years, and I think sometimes it dulls our senses and our ability to recognize the challenges that we face, and more importantly, the challenges that younger uh, girls face uh, and are going to have to try to navigate a healthy life through. So it's an important um, image, but it's sad to admit that, yeah, this is absolutely where we are. It is. You recall one of your clients, a 14-year-old girl, who told you about numerous boys who had approached her about um, uh, taking nude pictures for them. Uh, she was flattered by the sheer number of requests. She eventually ceded to their request and provided them. They were exposed, and that's a whole other uh, story. But you go on to, to talk about some of the young clients and uh, how they've been taken advantage of, how the messages of the culture have led them to believe what's untrue, and uh, how, um, how that's damaged uh, them and their ability to see clearly. Can you just paint a picture for our listeners who haven't read your introduction just some of the challenges that you write about that um, I think give us a sense of urgency that we need to respond and respond well with with young girls and to recognize how the culture is impacting us as perha- perhaps mature women.
2: Absolutely, yeah. We moved from uh, probably decades ago from a, a culture of character and valuing that to more of uh, charisma, and now we're in a culture where it's all about your brand. And so, as I've sat in the confidential spaces of many families, whether it's uh, marriages and moms and, and men, or it's their kids, there's this mindset of what is my brand um, and who am I portraying, whether it's on my Instagram um, and out in the the culture. And so, I've just seen this clear shift happening for the younger generation. They really clearly think. Uh, less about themselves as a person, and more about their messaging, which is, has created a, a sense of devaluing and objectifying of our girls. And so again, um, they go to church; they are, you know, know that that Jesus loves them. And yet uh, the messages that they're um, being exposed to um, on their cell phones, we give cell phones to our kids way too early and we've normalized that now. We have a lot of reasons why we think we do that, but it's actually impacting the brain development of both us parents, but particularly those where their brains aren't fully developed yet. So I try to offer a lot of uh, logical connections of saying, here's why our kids are in a different state. Um, They have a lot more anxiety they are struggling with depression and the comparison factor on a whole different level. When a girl got bullied or mean girls before the digital age, uh, she had to deal with maybe you know ten girls. Now it can uh, whatever gets, um, it gets bullied, it now gets posted online and she's going to have to deal with thousands if not millions of messages depending on those images. Um, The sad thing about this one particular client is she's not alone and she was in a Christian community Mm -hmm. and these were Christian boys asking for her pictures. And so that's the confusing message is that a lot of us think just because we're in what we think safer communities that our kids are exempt from this. And so I just really wanted to say, hey, all of us are on the same playing field and we really are all desperate to, to be seen and known and loved how we're going about that in today's age is very different, and it's creating some danger zones for us.
1: You uh, write later in the introduction, this book aims to fill in the gaps that Christian advice and self-help approaches create by unraveling how girls develop a confident voice, a strong sense of self, and a lasting spiritual depth, depth rather that keeps them rooted throughout the storms of life. Describe how you intend this resource to be used, to help accomplish that goal? Because I think many of the women who are listening are desperate to have a resource that's going to help them do just that with and for their daughters.
2: Absolutely. Well, you know, most of us know this, but maybe it's hard to practice, but we know that our daughters and our sons are watching us more than they're listening to us, right? And so um, this particular uh, book is meant for us women to look at our own stories, I and mean, most of what we are trying to protect our children from is related to our own story. If I had a bunch of, if I was super insecure in high school, then I'm probably doing a lot of the dynamics with trying to parent my child a certain way because of those same insecurities. Or if I did had, I struggled with friendship or my own body image issues. So I'm really walking through the core fundamental needs of every woman, whether it's to be loved just as she is, uh, to be known, and how to actually do intimate relationships with friends, um, how to move through conflict, uh, and then moving into sexuality. Even my own insecurities or my own harmed experiences with sexuality are interfering with being overly protective or maybe overly permissive with my daughter. And um, when we add a bunch of... The church in there as well, it can get super confusing. So I'm really just dissecting a lot of uh, who does God say we are and providing a guideline for how a mom or a woman can look at her own story. And that sets her up with maybe how to move toward her daughter in a more healthy way. And then there's Courageous Girls, which is a curriculum outside of the book that helps a mom walk alongside with other moms and daughters, with small groups of six to eight moms. And every month they have a lesson that is addressing the issues that are very pertinent to that age. So they start as young as second grade and can go all the way through high school. And we just are constantly revisiting our identity and our identity apart from what we do and actually in who we are and what, who God says we are. Um, shame is at the root of a lot of our stories, and mm-hmm. so I address that a lot in the book. And I get pretty practical, like, how do we actually listen to our daughters when they're doing a lot of complaining or they're not willing to talk to us? Um, those kinds of things. Yeah.
1: So what's the end goal? What does it look like to be a woman who is courageous, a a daughter who is rooted in grace, so that we know kind of when we get there or what we're moving toward? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be honest, I'm actually saying you are
2: her. This is about who God is in you. If you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you've got the power of God in you. And so often our theology, uh, we struggle with kind of who do I need to be? Who does God want me to be? And actually, he designed us in our mother's womb exactly who he wanted us to be. And it's the layers of shame in our story that hide us from that image of her. And so really discovering um, our wirings, our passions, And being more confident in who we are and being able to not compare ourselves to other women and to be able to have a voice, meaning, what do I think? What do I feel? Um, What is my desire? And being able to live out of the call of what God's asking of me instead of trying to be that woman over there. Um, You know, the pendulum swing can be on a shame side of a woman who says, I could never do that because Mm -hmm. X and Y happened to me, and that shame is so heavy. Or we go to the other side and we think, well, to be a godly woman, I need to adopt 10 kids and I need to start five nonprofits and I need (laughs) so we have these other extremes. And the the courageous woman is able to literally keep in step with the Holy Spirit and his movement in our life and to be connected to understanding our own humanity and being like, yes, I'm in process and God is at work because he's a big, big God and he is working, even despite me sometimes.
1: We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Tara Mattson. She's a local girl. The book is titled Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. The book is published by David C. Cook. We'll be back in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show 51 minutes after four o'clock. We're continuing our conversation with Tara Madsen. Her book is titled Courageous Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. Let's talk about what it means to be rooted in grace because as you're describing, um, what it means to be a courageous woman, it is essential that you are rooted in the, in God's grace, which eliminates the pressure of having to achieve all of these other things that we might imagine have to be done first. And then we can be identified as courageous women, or then we can do whatever it takes uh, to then be a courageous woman. What does it mean to be rooted in grace? Oh, Well, I spent a whole book writing about that. You sure <laughs> did.
2: <laughs> but I'll just to summarize it. It's just uh, it reminds us that our God loves us right where we are, and actually we're supposed we are where we're supposed to be. The striving it releases us from the striving and really uh, letting the process. Uh, where we are, and the layers of taking off shame and being able to see ourselves as He sees us—it's a profound process, and yet an oxymoron because uh, we are where we're supposed to be. Um, our God is not uh, waiting for us till we get to a certain point before He starts to, you know, enact His plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's right here, he's right now, and he's already moving. And that just frees us up, actually, to open our hands and to maybe engage in the process instead of holding more tightly to what we think is supposed to happen, expectations for our life. Um, and then when a storm comes, you know, you think of like a tree, the more rooted it is, the easier it is to withstand the storm, those deeper those roots are. And it even has that cross, uh, those roots that go across. They're shallow, but they're connected to other trees. Uh, So it also allows us to have more grace for other people and where they're at in their process. Um, It
1: just feels lighter. It's a lighter way to live. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we fail to recognize uh, the work of God in our our lives, the grace that we reside in, that he lavished upon us, what impact is that likely to have when we carry with us um, the baggage that he never intends for us to carry that, that may include shame or grow out of shame, what impact is that likely to have on our daughters as we attempt to pass on to them the freedom that we're intended to enjoy in Christ?
2: Yeah, that's such a good question, because though we don't want them to have what we have, you know, we don't want them to carry that same shame. Uh, Unfortunately, they can feel it. Uh, Every child is egocentric, meaning they uh, see the world as around revolves around them. God created it that way. So when we delight in them, they go, wow, I'm able to be delighted in. <laughs> um, but when we carry shame, they can't help but feel that too. And, and so really that's what this book is about is to say, hey, Mama, let's, let's address your own stuff. Mm-hmm. And innately that will pass on. If you live in grace, your daughter will pick that up. Uh, you'll also have more grace for her journey and free her up to not live under all these expectations of who you think she's supposed to be and more delight in who God already made her to be.
1: I know with Courageous Girls, you encourage mothers and their daughters to come together in uh, small groups to work through uh, the curriculum that you have designed. For a woman who is reading this book, is it best done? Because it's very practical, and you include at the end of each chapter— Some things for her to to consider and and, uh, ways for her to respond. Is it best read and studied and worked through as an individual or in groups of other women? How do you suggest uh, courageous being daughters rooted in grace is best um, ministered to a woman's heart?
2: Yeah, well, partly because I'm a therapist and I know that women are at all different stages, Mm -hmm. I created the book for uh, the woman who's just not ready to do that. Uh, She doesn't want to engage with other women yet. She's just not ready. So she can start on her own. But my ideal is that she would practice maybe reading a chapter at a time with a few other women and practice being more safe and vulnerable with them. And then uh, those questions at the end, some of them are uh, take it a next step and you can actually practice some things with your daughter. And then those that are ready for that next um, more in-depth step could start a Courageous Girls group. But honestly, women that don't have children um, in the home or grandmas or teachers, um, anyone can benefit from reading this book. If you are a daughter ever in your life, <laughs> then I'm addressing the
1: the needs that you have even now. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Now, for women who are interested in learning more about what you do with Living Wholehearted, what's the best way for them to connect with you and uh, if they're interested in uh, looking more deeply into courageous girls? Yeah, absolutely. The simplest is just to
2: go to TaraMatson.com, um, and I've got leads to all our um, organizations and options uh, but they, they're livingwholehearted.com. Our main offices are here in Tualatin, Oregon, and then we have a lodge and retreat out in Sherwood. And we've got all kinds of things, and the the latest and greatest is the Encourage Gathering uh, that's coming on March 13th and 14th. And then you can go directly to mycourageousgirls.com, um, and that's where you'll find more information. And the curriculum there is free. There is no strings attached. <laughs> we are just trying to help equip moms with the the what issues that we are facing today i really trying to bring the Bible down into the everyday practical mm-hmm. lives of these girls so moms are not afraid to talk about it and can guide and lead their daughters. Um, if we're not talking about it with them, they're figuring it out on their own, yeah. and we just want them to really know yeah. God's, God's heart for them.
1: Well, you are really a gift and a treasure to the body of Christ here locally and certainly beyond. And as you mentioned, the Encourage conference is coming up. Uh, March 13th and 14th, you can go to Encourage Gathering, and that's spelled with an I, EncourageGathering.com for more information about that as well. Thank you so much for your ministry and for taking time away from your very busy life to talk with <laughs> us once again here today. Oh, thank
2: you so much for having me. I look forward to connecting with you again in the I future. look
1: forward to it as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Again, Tara Madsen, author of Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace, and also um, uh, you can learn more at livingwholehearted.com or mycourageousgirls.com if you'd like to follow up with the work that uh, that she's doing. It really is a, a great book if you want to begin to really think through how how am I doing in Christ and how much of the culture is in me that's dictating my value and my purpose and my relationship with God, a very practical, kind of a systematic way to do that. We've got uh, news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, but in the second hour, We're going to talk with Mallory Quigley. She's the national spokeswoman for the Susan B. Anthony list. And she's also the Women Speak Out PAC, which is the Susan B. Anthony's uh, super PAC uh, on grassroots efforts to unite pro-life Americans in the 2020 elections, which can be challenging. There are one issue voters who believe that the pro-life issue is the number one uh, issue of our day and that uh, decisions are made solely on that issue. And um, there have been um, some things said that make it very clear that uh, pro-lifers are not welcome in every political party. We'll talk with Mallory about that uh, when she joins us in the next hour. So hope you'll join us as well. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
1: We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show second hour. In this second hour, we'll talk with Mallory Quigley. She's the national spokeswoman for Susan B. Anthony List and Women Speak Out PAC on grassroots efforts to unite pro-life Americans in the 2020 election. Well, the polls have closed in New Hampshire, and uh, Bernie Sanders has taken the early lead with 27.7 percent of the vote. Uh, Buttigieg follows close behind him, and Amy Klobuchar is in third, followed by Elizabeth Warren. Um, the vice president following Elizabeth Warren. So um, with the 8.2% to Andrew Yang at 2.8% has now dropped out of the presidential contest to Gabbard at two Steyer at 2.4. Again, Bernie Sanders, 27% Buttigieg twenty-two, 22 uh, followed by Amy Klobuchar at 20.8. It appears here. Anyway, trying to watch these numbers as they go by rather quickly. And as I mentioned, Andrew Yang seems to have dropped out at this point. We'll try to get some firm numbers a bit later in the program. Uh, A newly surfaced recording from a 2015 speech by Michael Bloomberg in which the former three-term mayor of New York City gives a full-throated defense of the policing procedure known as stop-and-frisk is uh, threatening to undermine his presidential candidacy. However, he said he's already apologized for it, um, and therefore it... uh, uh, he's already covered what he thought at the time was a program that was designed to protect um, residents in African-American um, predominant communities. Um, so it may it may not be quite as uh, disabling as has been predicted. Meanwhile, the former vice president abruptly announced uh, this morning that he won't spend primary night in New Hampshire as he had planned. Instead, he flew to South Carolina to head to the newly scheduled kickoff rally in the state. Uh, he 's long considered his uh, campaign firewall. It certainly is a much more diverse area, and the expectation is that will um, uh, will serve him well in this uh, this contest. Well, one of the issues that has been predominant uh, certainly between two of the uh, candidates is the notion of free college and I thought it rather interesting Mary Claire. Uh, Amsalem, writing for the Daily Signal, pointed out that free college certainly sounds great. Who doesn't like free stuff? Now, the problem is most stuff that we attach the word free to isn't. But to make the idea sound even more appealing, advocates continuously cite Europe as an example of success. And she writes that many European countries offer their citizens tuition free higher education, so why can't America? That's how the argument goes and has gone. I listened to someone who was being, uh, several people who were being uh, questioned earlier today in New Hampshire why have you decided to vote for fill in the blank? Uh, It was uh, tuition, free tuition, that was the motivator. Well, um, she goes on. Mary Claire Amselm goes on to write. The truth is that free college in Europe is a so, no success story. Rather, it should serve as a cautionary tale for the United States. European style tuition free higher education has proved one thing beyond the shadow of a doubt. Free college is actually widely expensive. Uh, Americans already pay a steep price for our higher education system. Taxpayers, including those who never went to college and never intend to, spend more than $150 billion a year on federal student loans, grants, and other government programs. The increasingly hefty price tag attached to college tuition reflects the fact that colleges have no incentive to keep their prices low because students can so easily take out massive loans from Washington. One of the few factors putting any downward pressure on higher education costs – is the growing criticism that universities receive for leaving so many students burdened with massive amounts of student loan debt. Under a fully financed government system, however, universities would receive no such scrutiny. They simply pass the bill to Washington and let lawmakers take the heat from unhappy taxpayers. Well, she goes on to point out that the cumulative bill would quickly skyrocket. Many European countries that have experimented with free college are finding that approach to be simply unaffordable. Germany, for example, saw a 37 percent increase in the college subs a subsidy cost to taxpayers once public universities removed tuition, again, being paid for by taxpayers. Similarly, England had a free college policy between the 60s up to the 90s. Enrollment soared, straining government revenues. Ultimately, England had to lower the resources by 39 percent per student. Ultimately, England's free college policy wound up hurting low-income students the most as schools were forced to cap the number of students admitted. In fact, according to researchers at the National Bureau of Economic Research, the gap in degree attainment between high and low income families more than double just the opposite of what you would think european countries that offer tuition-free higher education also struggle with the issue of completion finland for example uh, ranks first among all organizations for economic cooperation and development countries in terms of subsidies for higher education with 96 percent of all higher education funding coming from public sources however finland ranks 25th among OECD countries for degree attainment. France famously touts its tuition-free university system. Seldom, however, do its uh, uh, boasts note that almost 50% of French students drop out or fail out after just... Their first year. It's clear that transferring the entire cost of higher education from students to taxpayers is fraught with unintended consequences. She writes countries such as England and Poland actually saw significant increases in higher education quality and access after reinstating private tuition payments in their countries. It appears that there is some value in requiring students to invest in their own education. Given the increased tax burden placed on taxpayers, including those who don't hold degrees, the significant overcrowding, the high dropout rates, European-style free college should largely be considered a public policy failure. The $1.5 trillion in outstanding student loan debt that Americans owe is certainly a crisis. However, the solution to this problem is not to encourage more students to attend who may later drop out and ask Americans who did not go to college to pay for those who do. This would be uh, would fuel inefficient higher education spending and weaken the integrity of our colleges and universities. The solution in America, as in Europe, is to put individuals rather than government in charge of higher education financing. Again, Mary Claire Amson writing for the Daily Signal with an interesting perspective on one of the major issues Of this campaign. Well, the Justice Department is apparently preparing to change its sentencing recommendations for Roger Stone after top brass were shocked at the stiff prison term initially being sought. That's according to a senior Department of Justice official. Federal prosecutors had recommended that Judge Amy Berman Jackson sentence Stone, who's between 87 and 108 months in prison for his conviction on seven counts of obstruction, witness tampering, making false statements to Congress on charges that stemmed from former special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. The department was shocked to see the sentencing recommendation and the filing in the Stone case last night, said uh, the official. The sentencing recommendation was not what had been briefed to the department. The department is now expected to scale that back. The department finds seven to nine years extreme, excessive and grossly disproportionate to Mr. Stone's offenses. Well, the president tweeted about the sentencing recommendations early in the morning today, leading to speculation that a pardon may be in Stone's future. Uh, The decision to alter the sentencing recommendation was made before that tweet. The director of the department's public affairs uh, office said Uh, She said that uh, the department has had no contact with the White House regarding the sentencing recommendation. There's been speculation of a presidential pardon that has not yet been forthcoming. But the speculation continues. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, hearing that was held today on the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. Nineteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today was a hearing on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act and Family Research Council's Patrina Mosley, who's the director of Life, Culture and Women's Advocacy, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on that act. She offered testimony um, uh, and in her testimony said that in 2002, Congress did pass the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, But a law is often only as good as its enforcement mechanisms. She said the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act is needed because it would require that practitioners must exercise professional skill, care and diligence to preserve the life of infants who survive abortion and legal penalties for abortionists who do not comply. So the dreaded question becomes what actually happens to a child born alive after a failed abortion attempt? Are they administered medical care or does infanticide take place, which is the act of killing a newborn child? Well, Mosley cited the uh, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control Statistics, that recorded at least 143 infants between 2003 and 2004, uh, the period uh, where the last um, records are, are known, who died after an abortion procedure without any federal prosecution because there was no federal statute to provide for one. She also pointed out that 34 states have enacted additional protections for born-alive abortion survivors, indicating that the federal law is not enough. However, only 15 states have the same strong protections that are reflected in the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And she reminded the committee of remarks made last year by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam who suggested that a mother and doctor could have a discussion about whether or not a born-alive abortion survivor would, in fact, be allowed to continue to survive in order to thrive. So whether a newborn gets the chance to live or not is a matter for discussion, while precious moments slip by as the infant is fighting for her uh, life on a delivery table. At this point, we're no longer talking about abortion or a woman's body. We are talking about a child who has clearly become the patient She insisted in that hearing. She concluded by refuting the claim that there are no born-alive abortion survivors by highlighting the stories of Gianna Jessen and Melissa Oden, who survived abortions, and three babies who were born as early as uh, 21 to 23 weeks and are thriving today because they were given care. That hearing was held today, but, of course, there won't be any kind of a decision made in Congress for some time. Nonetheless... Something to follow and certainly to pray about. Meanwhile, polygamy, polygamists have lived in Utah since before it became a state. Eighty-five years after plural marriage was declared a felony, they still number in the thousands and have even been featured in a long-running reality television show, actually more than one. Now a state lawmaker there says it's time to remove the threat of jail time or for otherwise law-abiding polygamists. The law is a failure, he said. It hasn't stopped polygamy at all, and it's actually enabled abuse to occur and remain unchecked. The Republican, Senator Deidre Henderson, said her proposal to make bigamy an infraction rather than a felony has gathered significant support. It was unanimously approved by the legislative panel on Monday, despite resistance from former members of polygamous groups who said it could embolden abusers. An estimated 30,000 people live in Utah's polygamous communities, believe plural marriage brings exaltation in heaven, a legacy of the early Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The polygamists may not face jail time under new Utah law, abandoned uh, the practice in 1890 under pressure from the U.S. government, and now strictly forbids it, although it's not strictly enforced. Unlike other states, Utah outlaws living with a second spiritual spouse, even if the man is legally married to just one woman. Well, Henderson argues that law and the legacy of raids as recently as 1950s has created a culture of fear that empowers notorious abusers like Warren Jeffs. His followers wear distinctive historic looking dresses, and he is now serving a life prison sentence in Texas for sexually assaulting girls he considered plural wives. Now, why making this uh, less than a felony would um, resolve that issue is not clear to me. And it was predicted at the time that same-sex marriage was being debated that this would be Uh, the next pillar of marriage as between one man and one woman to fall on the other end of the spectrum are modern consenting adult polygamists um, like those featured on television programs. The Utah attorney general has publicly declined to prosecute polygamists uh, for years, but the uh, bigamy law remains on the books. So while the law is not being administered, there's an effort to um, make it something less than a felony, which would be less discouraging, I would suppose, to those who choose to embrace it again, not altogether surprising uh, given what we've seen and what has been um, projected. Well, Jesse Smullett has been indicted by a grand jury on six counts of disorderly conduct for allegedly lying to police about his claim of a racist and homophobic attack against him in January of 2019. A special prosecutor said today, now Jesse Smollett, who is this guy? You might have forgotten. It's been a little more than a year. He was the actor from empire who staged an event in which he claimed that he had been uh, attacked because of his uh, uh, sexual orientation and his ethnic background. Well, Special Prosecutor Dan Webb issued a statement announcing the indictment of the 37-year-old former Empire star. The actor is due in court the 24th of February. Uh, Smollett, who is uh, black and gay, originally was charged last year with disorderly conduct for allegedly staging the attack, Lying about it to investigators, the charges were dropped in March of 2019 with little explanation, which angered police officials who spent a considerable amount of resource investigating the claim. Well, Cook County Judge Michael Tooman in August appointed Webb, a former U.S. attorney, a special prosecutor, to look into why the charges were dropped. Webb was also charged with looking into whether Cook County um, State's attorney Kim Fox called uh, uh, with a Smollett relative and an ex aide of former First Lady Michelle Obama, unduly influenced that decision to drop the charges. Well, in January, Smollett told police he was attacked by two masked men as he was walking home from a Chicago Subway sandwich shop at approximately 2 a.m. And he alleged that the masked men taunted him with homophobic and racial slurs, beating him and looping a noose around his neck before fleeing. He said his attackers, at least one of whom he said was white, told him he was in MAGA country, a reference to the president's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. In February of um, last year, police determined that he, his masked attackers were, in fact, brothers, Abel and Ola Asundero, who trained Smollett, worked with him on Empire. Investigators also identified the brothers, as those on surveillance video buying the rope that reportedly was hung around the actor's neck during an alleged attack for which they were paid. After an intense investigation, police said they determined Smullett staged the entire episode with the help of the two brothers whom he paid to take part in the hoax assault as an elaborate effort to drum up publicity for his middling career. And after prosecutors dropped the case in March, he maintained his innocence, but agreed to let officials keep a $10,000 bail. He then was charged with firing, uh, filing a false police report, um, uh, and those charges were later dropped. Well, it is now resurfaced, and he uh, will have to defend himself in court. The Oscars took place just this last Sunday, but Corey Feldman says he wants the world to know that pedophilia is Hollywood's biggest problem. In an interview with The Guardian, the 80s icon claims that his long-awaited documentary will expose a child's sex ring in which he and later actor Corey Haim were victims— Feldman is now 48. He was um, has teased potentially incriminating information for decades as he plans to finally name the abusers of his Lost Boys co-star in the documentary, tentatively titled Truth, the Rape of the Two Corys. Uh, the Goonies and Stand By Me actor also criticized the industry for impeding his film's production by sending lawyers to block access to police reports and footage. Nobody wants to go after the bad guys, he said. Well, he said this is the uh, bigger story, the biggest problem, in Hollywood, not hashtag Me too. So that's expected to come out at some point uh, in the future, in which he suggests that this is a major issue in Hollywood. Now he has not been a child star for decades. Whether or not it remains so, uh, it will have to wait and see what the um, what the documentary says. And the first Americans evacuated from Wuhan, China, amid the deadly coronavirus outbreak, were released on Tuesday. That's today. After a two-week quarantine at March Air Reserve Base in California, most of the 125 evacuees left by bus for nearby airports to continue on their final destination. A small group remained on base until tomorrow due to their travel arrangements, but for no other reason. Our work here is done, said Dr. Cameron Kaiser, the public health officer of Riverside County uh, Health. He said these people are going home and I expect each and every one of us um, uh, to let them. Uh, Officials said that the individuals passed all health screenings, including those that were issued before their release, uh, to their communities. Those people do not have coronavirus. Um, The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention spokeswoman said it is important they go back into their communities and they be accepted into those communities. The group is largely made up of State Department employees and their families and has been continually monitored for possible symptoms of the virus, which includes fever, shortness of breath and respiratory issues. Two children in the group were taken to a hospital after they developed a fever, but both tested negative for the virus. So this is the first uh, coronavirus evacuees who have now been released. So that's that's good news. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Mallory Quigley. She's the national spokeswoman for Susan B. Anthony List and Women Speak Out PAC on grassroots efforts to unite pro-life Americans in the 2020 election. Now, that's that's something of a challenge. Um, on the national level, particularly, we'll talk with her about that when she joins me in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey,
1: we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Are Democrats kicking pro-lifers out of the Democrat Party? Well, at the Our Rights, Our Courts Forum in Concord a month or so ago, Bernie Sanders said being pro-choice is an absolutely essential part of being a Democrat. Well, no candidate for the Democratic presidential nominee on the stage disagreed. Later, Pete Buttigieg told Democrats for Life of America's executive director, Kristen Day, the same thing at a recent Fox News town hall, The party that once said abortion should be rare now says pro-lifers need not apply. By the way, after the Buttigieg exchange, there was a 13-tweet tirade from the head of NARAL calling Kristen Day by name as anti-choice and confirms that she is not welcome in the Democrat Party. Well, here to talk with us about that and what Susan B. Anthony List is doing is Mallory Quigley. She's a national spokeswoman for Susan B. Anthony List and Women Speak Out PAC on grassroots efforts to unite all pro-life Americans in the 2020 election. Mallory, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for having me. It was in 1996 and several years following that there was language in the Democrat platform that said, we understand that people have very differing views on this issue, but we are a big tent party that includes everybody, and therefore we welcome you, people like me, into the party uh, so we can work on issues that we agree on. Uh, things have changed rather dramatically of late. Bring us up to date. Yes, well,
3: you know, really, this this has been happening over the last 10 years or so. The Democratic Party platform has been getting increasingly extreme. Uh, in fact, we probably believe it was in 2012 some of the most extreme language was added. Yeah, like you said, long gone are the days of safe, legal, and rare. Now it is actual party platform language that says um, we believe in abortion no, no matter what for any circumstance. Uh, regardless of ability to pay. That means, by the way, funded by you and I, the taxpayers. And um, now, you know, we're seeing Hillary Hillary Clinton in the last election. Now, even like the, the Midwestern moderate, Joe Biden, they're all coming out against things like the Hyde Amendment, which is longstanding, bipartisan, popular legislation stopping taxpayer funding of abortion, there was a Senate hearing today on the Born Alive yes. Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which is is about about as moderate as you can get. I mean, this isn't really about abortion. It's about when we have babies that are born alive after failed abortions, which by the way happens because we have extreme late term abortion in this country. So when you're when you're when you're aborting kids five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten nine months into pregnancy there is a chance that they're going to survive. And this legislation would just say, look, we're going to protect these babies, give them the same treatment that we would wanted children born in the NICU down the hall. Uh, and, and not a single of the Democratic senators who are running for president to have supported that legislation.
1: Now, do you think so, this is based on the <clears throat> political calculation that there simply are not uh, Democrats in the party who are pro-life? Or that the party in this uh, this leap to the left, uh, they just simply yeah. cannot make any room for um, uh, for ac- or accommodation for those who uh, they once embraced under their big tent as yeah. holding a disagreement, but we can live together nonetheless.
3: Yeah, I think it's a very short sighted calculation on the part of the the candidate. They're clearly you know they're jockeying to the left in a primary situation, but. 70% of Democrats support something like the Born Alive Bill, this this legislation that I was just referencing, and and the Hyde Amendment, and the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, the five-month abortion ban. Um, when you look at rank-and-file Democrats, uh, consistently over the last several decades, about a third of rank-and-file Democrats have identified themselves as pro-life. And when you look at state legislatures, Democrats also are identifying as pro-life at that level, um, at the state legislature level. So for so to illustrate this, 21 states have passed a five-month abortion ban. Of all of the Democrat state legislators who have had the chance to vote on that bill, about a third of them have supported it. But then when you get to this national level, we're seeing like a, a huge dearth of pro-life Democrats, and I really think that's because Planned Parenthood, NARAL, as you mentioned, now the extreme abortion lobby has such a chokehold on the Democratic Party at the national level that they've really given the candidates no choice but to just be all in for abortion, even though it's really out of touch um, with mainstream American values. And I think we're going to see that reflected in the general election scenario.
1: Well, let's talk about what uh, what's being done to try to make uh, a home for uh, pro-life Americans of uh, the Democrat stripe in this 2020 election, because obviously what transcends political party is the value of the human life and the desire to see protection returned here in the United States. What are you all doing and what can we do to make that point? Yeah, well,
3: um, what, what Susan the Anthony List and our, our super PAC, Women Speak Out, we are going door to door and talking to voters about the life issue. And what we have found in the last three election cycles is that when we talk to Democrats, independents, um, moderate Republicans, including you know, suburban women, Hispanic voters, when we talk to them about the, the issues of the day, the pro-life issues of the day that are being debated, like the five-month abortion ban, like protecting babies born alive after failed abortion, like stopping taxpayer funding of abortion, these voters are significantly moved by this message when they find out where their Democrat incumbents stand. And if you're a single-issue voter, like a lot of people are, um, or or this, really, this issue can really move you, if you say you want to vote for a Democrat politician because you support them on immigration or health care, uh, this the extremism that the parties reached on these issues can really is enough to, to swing votes. And our message is if you're pro-life and you want to support babies, you want to see the United States, for example, taken off the list of only seven countries in the whole world to allow elective abortion after five months, you've got to vote for President Trump and pro-life Senate candidates. Um, and that is the pro-life position to take. So that's the message we're going to be presenting to voters. It's real simple. There's a lot of clarity that exists on this issue between the two sides. Unfortunately, they aren't, like, totally diametrically opposed. Uh, we wish that this was a, a, a bipartisan issue, but I think until the Democratic Party starts to see political consequences for this, ext- the, the policy extremism that they've espoused on abortion, that they won't change. So there's got to be consequences at the ballot box first.
1: How likely is it that pro-life Democrats can influence the platform in the twenty leading up to uh, the 2020 election, and perhaps see the possibility of modification in that language?
3: Well, I mean, I think Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders—they're really speaking for the party on mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, or even look at like the DCCC. They have they've got a pro life Democrat, Dan Lipinski, out in Illinois, a third congressional district. They are really subtly, and even not so subtly, um, you know, endorsing his opponent, supporting his opponent. Um, so the party has taken like a, a what's the word? You know, it's hardwired into into their operation mm-hmm. to to push out pro like Democrats. I mean, Kristen Day, mm-hmm. you know, she, I, she, I admire her. She was really brave getting up uh, during that Fox town hall to talk about this with, you know, somebody, a young um, guy who was trying to portray himself as sort of as a moderate, mm-hmm. like Pete Buttigieg, to, to talk to him about this, just to say, hey, is there room for me in your party? And he's straight up said no. So I don't think that pro-life Democrats are going to get any better of a reception uh, when it comes to the yeah. the, um, the committee this summer, the, and the platform committee and, and that language. It's really, it's been hardwired in.
1: So people who are interested in following your efforts, what's the best way for them to connect?
3: I would encourage people to go to lifeontheballot.com. That's where Susan D. Anthony List is tracking all of the candidates and their stance on life. Uh, And also just to follow us on social media at SBA list on Twitter and Susan the Anthony list on Facebook.
1: We're talking about the, um, the national party. Are you seeing anything more promising on the state level? Are there more pro-life Democrats who are expressing a pro-life perspective down ballot?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, The answer is yes. In the wake of the extremist laws that were ad- that were passed in New York and advocated where I'm from here in Virginia, um, these extreme pro-abortion laws, we saw pro-life state legislators, many of them Democrats, take uh, react in the opposite stance. And not just in the Deep South, like Louisiana, where uh, a pro-life African-American Democrat woman, Katrina Jackson, Advocated for health and safety standards for abortion facilities and admitting privileges. Her bill is going to be um, is before the Supreme Court next month. Katrina Jackson. I encourage all pro life Democrats to support her. But also in New Mexico and New Hampshire, we had uh, pro life Democrats defeat extreme pro abortion bills similar to what passed in New York. So certainly at the state level, there are uh, strong pro life Democrats and. Um, I would encourage people that are interested in this, uh, in, in affirming uh, pro-life Democrats to, to find out who the pro-life Democrats are in your state legislature. There's a good chance that they're there and um, to really in- give them some encouragement, support their campaigns, because the pressure to become pro-abortion it increases yeah. as they rise in prominence.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Mallory, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate your input. It's it's
3: been my pleasure, and I hope to come on again soon.
1: Thank you. Again, Mallory Quigley is national spokeswoman for Susan B. Anthony List and Women Speak Out PAC. On grassroots efforts to unite all pro life Americans in the 2020 elections. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Dave Harvey, author of I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. Well, seven years after his surprise resignation, once Pope Benedict, I'm not sure what you call a past Pope. Anyway, um, weakened by age, but still intellectually spry, appears unable to remain in the shadow of his Argentinian successor, Francis, who is currently the Pope, uh, creating the appearance of two Popes. Well, on February 11th of 2013, at the age of 85, the German intellectual Joseph Ratzinger announced in Latin to astonished cardinals that he would cease being Pope a situation unheard of for seven centuries. Well, for five years, the unusual cohabitation in the smallest state in the world between the 265th Pope in retirement and the 266th Francis went on without a hitch. But as the emeritus, Pope Benedict, a learned theologian, continued in his retirement to write on the great themes of the church, friction has arisen, most recently over the topic of married now, I title this story The Two, as in TWO, the two pooped to Pope problem. On Wednesday, Francis will unveil his stance on priestly marriage after a synod of uh, Amazonian bishops re- uh, recommended in October that the priesthood be open to married indigenous people. Some say this exception would solve the problem of a lack of priests in remote areas of the Amazon. Well, the Vatican insists that Francis' position has already decided, or rather was already decided in December before the publication uh, in January, of a book castigating the Senate's conclusions and the offending the celibacy of priests, co-signed by Benedict, and the ultra-traditional um, Guinean Cardinal, Robert Serra. Well, some Vatican observers say Francis was strongly irritated by the publication, which caused shockwaves when excerpts were um, first published In Le or I think it's probably Figaro uh, newspaper, through his private secretary, the German archbishop, George something, uh, uh, Benedict uh, tried to backtrack on the publication, explaining that he had never uh, approved uh, a co-authored book project, but the damage had already been done, with the former pope weighing in on the importance of priestly celibacy ahead of the successor, the current pope's pronouncement on that subject. Well, Benedict also ruffled feathers back in April of 2019 when in a long text, he blamed pedophilia within the church of the 1960s sexual revolution and an absence of God in modern society. Well, Francis has said the problem stems from within the church itself and has criticized clericalism or how a sense of priestly superiority has caused the clergy to become remote from the faithful. Well, the, um, his friend, whose uh, duties included organizing Francis' audiences, has not been seen at the side of the current Pope since the publication of the book. The prelate appears to have been sidelined and invited to spend more time, well, taking care of the retired Pope. Well, a Bavarian television documentary in January revealed that the frailed Benedict, in a wheelchair, speaking with a faint voice, uh, the former pope no longer cel- celebrates Mass himself in his monastery within the Vatican Gardens, decorated with family photos and Bavarian souvenirs. The former pope, who's given himself the title of Emeritus Pope, has now substituted monk's sandals for his red mules of the past, but he continues to wear a white cassock within the ca- Vatican walls. Well, Mr. Gainswine, um, who lives with Benedict in the same monastery, is quoted in the documentary as saying, you can see when he... Uh, walks that his strength has weakened. Well, three years ago, he explained that the two-Pope phenomenon, there was not two Popes, but a de facto expanded ministry with one active and one uh, contemplative member, so they are technically two Popes. Such statements uh, have fueled a traditionalist fringe within the Vatican, which considers Francis illegitimate and interprets all writings of Benedict as criticism of his successor. But last week, the second most powerful person in the Vatican, Cardinal... um, uh, Parolin, he sought to put the affair to rest, saying Francis was the one and only pope. Let's stop talking about two sovereign pontiffs because there is only one pope, the one who is invested with papal authority. That is Francis, he said, ignoring that the other had been given that papal authority. Well, Francis, true, tried to stamp out the ambiguity in 2016, saying Benedict was a pope emeritus and not the second pope, comparing his 10 year old um, elder to a grandfather at home. Still, popular culture has run with the idea. The Two Popes, a film by Brazilian director, uh, imagines an oratorical joust between an authoritarian German pope played by Anthony Hopkins and a future Argentinian pope played by uh, Jonathan Price, who uh, likes to watch soccer and who wants to teach the pope to tango. I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean, but nonetheless, apparently there is a problem with the two popes, one emeritus and one acting. Again, the two pooped to Pope problem. Once again, tomorrow we'll talk with Dave Harvey, author of I Still Do, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. I should also mention on Thursday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His book is titled Courageous, as was today's guest, but his subtitle, Ten Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. The book is published by Baker. He'll be with us on Thursday. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.